This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and for the next hour, we're going to be chatting a lot of things that affect your health. Uh, as always, we'll be taking questions, and uh, today's show, I'm happy that we're going to have our first guest is going to be uh, Mr. Bo Doherty. As many of our listeners will know, Mr. Doherty is the president of Special Olympics Connecticut. Special Olympics Connecticut is getting ready to have their 50th anniversary of the Summer Games, and that's going to be on June 8th, 9th, and 10th. And we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Special Olympics and how it's helped people with intellectual disabilities move ahead. Uh, so we're going to chat with uh, Mr. Doherty. And then the second half hour, we're going to be chatting with my colleague, Dr. Nir Zivi. Dr. Zivi is a stroke neurologist. He specializes in stroke. He is a, currently a neurohospitalist at Lawrence and Memorial Hospital in New London. So he's going to talk to us a little bit about what's going on with stroke awareness. This is Stroke Awareness Month. This day in medicine, John Jacob Abel was born. Uh, Dr. Abel was actually a pharmacologist and physiologist. He was from Baltimore. And he really pioneered the study of endocrine secretions. So like all the different hormones, thyroid hormone, he isolated epinephrine for the first time. He developed plasmapheresis. Plasmapheresis is a process that we use today that filters the blood, almost like dialysis, except it just takes off the protein portion of blood. It became famous when we were treating illnesses such as Guillain-Barre. So in neurology, uh, patients who had a paralytic illness who were young uh, and even elderly, but we see it more in the young, uh, we were able to filter out what are called antibodies, the things that it, were attacking the nerves. We still use plasmapheresis in the treatment of, as I said, uh, Guillain-Barre. We treat myasthenia gravis with it. But we use it a little less often now that we have other medications to use uh, in, in its replace. Uh, Dr. Abel also isolated crystalline insulin. And a lot of his work, when I looked it up, really had a lot to do with renal function, how the kidneys function. So we remembered John Jacob Abel, who was born in 1857, and so many of the things he was talking about then uh, are going on now. So really important from that standpoint. There's currently a health study going on in the United States where they're looking for a million participants to donate their DNA. And the idea is to use a DNA basis to trace people's health. So collect your DNA and then really track your health and to see how much DNA plays in that. The problem is, do we really want to give up your DNA? Uh, I had an interesting conversation with a professional baseball player who was telling me a story that one baseball card company wanted to come out with something different. 
and what they wanted to do was put a a piece a, a strand of his hair in every baseball card. Uh, he just we looked at each other. He said, "Man, is that creepy?" Uh, plus, didn't know if he wanted everybody having his DNA. So, uh, needless to say, marketing gets the best of it. So, this is an aggressive study, a, a very interesting study. But I think you're going to have trouble finding people who want to just donate their DNA for it to be followed in a longitudinal study like that. My column in the Norwich Bulletin this week dealt with David Price, a Boston Red Sox pitcher who missed a start because he was reported to have carpal tunnel syndrome. And we're going to talk more about carpal tunnel syndrome next week because my guest is going to be Dr. Stephen Scarangella. And I want to ask him some of these questions because Mr. Price is saying he got carpal tunnel syndrome from playing computer games, a game called Fortnite. And I guess he plays it for hours on end. But I've not found it to be a very common cause of carpal tunnel, playing computer games. In his case, I think they use a joystick as opposed to a console. But usually people who are using a console repeatedly really injure their thumbs more than anything and develop arthritis in their thumbs. So uh, interesting that he missed a start. He's back pitching now. And we're going to talk more about carpal tunnel syndrome a little more next week. We are once again faced with the sad situation of a school shooting yesterday, this time in Santa Fe, Texas. And I I think we're all scratching our heads, unfortunately, trying to figure out how do we stop this. And one feeling and one thing we know is it comes down to the human brain. It's more than coincidence that these shooters um, – much like people who defect or become part of ISIS, young people who commit suicide in the United States are between the ages of 13 and 24. Not, it's not pure coincidence. The human brain, the frontal lobe, is very active, and that prefrontal cortex is, what, is where our judgment lies. Now, it's not that it's not developed. As a matter of fact, in that age group, it's overdeveloped. There are so many network connections all firing off. The process the brain is going through is to try and see which ones your brain doesn't need and to become more efficient. So there's a lot, there are a lot of things going on in the human brain as it's developing. The other part of the brain that plays a role in this is the insula. I-N-S-U-L-A. It's about the size of a thumb, deep in the brain, and it reacts. It is where our emotions are. And again, that is working overtime in many young people in those ages. Many of those young people become fearless. They Risky behaviors we'll see in that age group. We also see that people react more emotionally because they don't have all the input. So there is a physiologic reason why all these things are happening. So we can go on and on about more guns, fewer guns, bigger walls, better locks, uh, a whole series of things. But until we get to the problem of the human brain and dealing with it at that stage, we really have to be focused. Now, is there a solution? Yes. Actually, studies have been done and are ongoing. And I would point people to, there's a very helpful podcast out 
uh, called What Were They Thinking by Gina Templeton Rask. And I thought they do a beautiful job of summarizing the data and the information. So how do you solve this? You solve this by getting young people to read. Imagine this. Read, and not just read for the sake of reading, but to read and take those words and critically think. So critical thought helps the brain develop more efficiently and supports it in the sense that there are not these reactions. I can tell you that we are not helping the human brain by playing Fortnite, okay? I'm going to stick my neck out. Maybe there are a lot of gamers out there, but we need to get away from this kind of automatic just doing whatever is pleasurable and start to use the brain at a young age to read, not just read words, read music, learn languages. Things such as this help the brain develop and control some of these impulsive urges. So, again, a different way of looking at the problem, and that's what we like to do on this program, is throw out some different ways of approaching problems that face us in health and in society. With that, we're going to take a short break. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. We're going to take a quick break and then be back with my guest, Mr. Bo Doherty. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And now that we have had that royal minute, um, we could get back to business here. Uh, my guest today is Mr. Bo Darty. He is president of Special Olympics of Connecticut. Bo, welcome. Tony, hey, great to be talking to you this morning. Well, this is a big one. Uh, you know, coming up in June, uh, it's 8th, 9th, and 10th, is going to be the 50th anniversary of Special Olympics and I'm excited. Actually, I'm, I got assigned out to uh, soccer, so I'll be out at the soccer fields this year, But uh, and which I, I love being out there with them. But t- tell us a little bit about what this really means, this 50th anniversary. Well, t- you know, to a lot of us that have been involved for a long time, it's, it is a monster milestone. You know, I've actually been involved since 1976, so I knew Eunice Kennedy Shriver pretty well, so I'm pretty familiar with the origins and because of the fact that you know in my early years I actually worked in an institution coached athletes um, saw what an institution was like and uh, and I think back and I can think back to those days and then you know rev things up move ahead and see what things are like are now I think the milestone really is what Special Olympics has done in the world in terms of marketing and really coming up with something that really worked favorably for people with intellectual disabilities, you know, because now, you know, you're in 182 countries, you've got 4.5 million people involved across this globe. You know, what uh, what really makes it special is not just the athletes, but the support you have from the community, the number of volunteers. How many volunteers are there? I mean, in this weekend, how many volunteers are you expecting? Well, I think for the summer games, you'll probably get about 3,000 volunteers. Um, You know, one of the great things for us, as you know, Tony, is a lot of people bring their kids, and we have a lot of corporate support. So, you know, I, I, you know, 
it's interesting you bring that up because I think, you know, the one thing that I do remember in the early days is that we really didn't, when you brought out people with intellectual disabilities out of an institution, you didn't really get a lot of support um, in my early days anyway. But uh, Special Olympics, I think, made it fashionable uh, for some reason. I think sports, I think the Kennedy family probably, um, a lot of political support really ended up changing things to the point where people were just so much more accepting. And I think that once they get around our athletes, they started to come back in big ways. Um, because as you know, we get a lot of people who repeat and, uh, and that's a really good thing to, you know, get to a point where we can get this many volunteers. We have at least last year, we had about 11,000 registered volunteers for the whole year and as a nonprofit, that's a pretty good number. Uh, I, I'm always amazed because there are several generations of volunteers in the sense that there are parents and then, you know, their children are now adults uh, bringing grandchildren there. So there have always been several generations uh, working at it. Um, the other thing is, uh, at least in soccer, I get – I really like working with that group because – you have this integration of athletes who have intellectual disabilities with those that do not. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know you've pioneered some of that uh, here in Connecticut. Yes. Well, you know, that's referred to now as unified sport. Right. It's, a, it's actually a program that I started in 1983 in Massachusetts and went to Eunice Kennedy Shriver with um, in 84 went through a number of years, and in 1989, she actually, um, and by that time I was in Connecticut, had unveiled to the world that that was a, a program of Special Olympics. There's actually 1.6 million people doing unified sports now in the world, and ESPN is um, the world's sponsor of it. So it has really grown, obviously, here in Connecticut, um, you know, we were one of the early groups working with our adults, but the crazy thing about Connecticut that's known in Special Olympics land is that 95% of all our high schools do unified sports. And that is highly unusual in the United States for that to happen. Right. And some of the sports, I know, so we have, I mentioned soccer. Um, I know you do it in basketball. Uh, what other sports do we do it in? Tony, honestly, we have 27 sports, and I think, and I'd have a hard time going through them. So there are that all, many. I, I'm going to say wow. that about eight, about 18 sports wow. have a unified component. Wow! So, you know, we we uh, sailing is completely unified. Golf, about 150 athletes do skills, and you get about 100 athletes with partners who do um, who do golf, alternating shots, nine holes. So. We we're we're big into inclusion here. Um, it's you certainly uh, Tim Schreiber, who's the chairman of Special Olympics now, took over for his mother. He's a big inclusion guy. So he, you know, when he's going around the world, he's going into places like Romania who do you know traditional Special Olympics, but he's really trying to move them to um, allowing for people without disabilities to be on the same teams with our athletes, which, as you and I both know, is. Uh, is a huge win-win for our athletes. Uh, it's a huge win-win for everybody. And and what can we expect? What What's next for Special Olympics? We're 50 years into this. It's been hugely successful. And again, um, done without federal support. Okay? Uh, I don't think a lot of people know that. 
you know, what's next for Special Olympics, both from participation and um, how people can help out, how people can support? Well, the best way that people can help is to come out and volunteer, you know, because it's, first of all, it's fun. You're actually seeing where, where the, your volunteer efforts actually mean something, and you can do it as a family. So I would say that the best way to to do something or to support an organization is not necessarily always with money, but it's really to get out there. Money, sometimes, you know, usually follows. So, you know, if people go to our website, they can see that we do, you know, four monstrous games. Summer games get 2,400 athletes, but our next largest games get about 2,300 athletes. So it, we have qualifiers going into those. We have unified sports happening all the time with the schools. So, there's a lot of opportunities for people to pick from. As far as where we're going as an organization, I would say that Connecticut is ahead of the game. I think that the fitness stuff that we're doing, the health stuff that we're doing that you're very aware of, um, the sports side of the house, doing it in an inclusive way, and having our athletes as leaders on the board and being global messengers is really where this organization is going. So, I would say that there's other countries and states that have to play a little bit of catch-up right now and that Tim Shriver and the International Office's efforts are trying to get people to go from perhaps what we were like in 1985 to what we should be like right now in this particular small state that um, has been ahead of the curve for quite a while. Bo, I just want to thank you. We're coming up on a hard stop, but I really want to thank you and everybody involved in Special Olympics Connecticut. And looking forward to seeing you on June 8th, 9th, and 10th. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks for taking time. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with my guest, Dr. Nir Zevi. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to have you all here. That is, those are the sounds of ZZ Top, and uh, they will be at the Mohegan Sun next week. There's a lot going on uh, with uh, Mohegan Sun this week, uh, actually starting tomorrow at 1 p.m. Um, I will be at Mohegan Sun. We're going to start the 16th season for the Connecticut Sun basketball team. So I will be there on the sideline. Uh, they are will be there again on Thursday evening and then again on Saturday. Uh, uh, actually, yes, next Saturday night at 7 p.m. So and uh, mark your calendars down for ZZ Top, uh, who will be coming to Mohegan Sun. That will be on Sunday, May 27th. My next guest is Dr. Nir Zivi. Dr. Zivi is a neurologist, a colleague, and a friend of mine um, over the years. And he has a he is a specialist in stroke. And this is Stroke Awareness Month. Uh, Dr. Zivi is a neurohospitalist at Lawrence and Memorial Hospital. Nir, welcome to the show. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me today. Hey, let's start by telling people what a neurohospitalist does. Uh, from the standpoint, because I think a lot of people are not that familiar with your profession. Yeah, Tony, that's a good point. People get confused about that all the time. And basically, it's a neurologist who is on site at the hospital 
to take care of neurologic emergencies of all sorts, especially when it comes to stroke when time is essential. And if a neurologist is in their clinic or private practice, that extra time it takes to get to the hospital and to assess the patient may be critical. So it's true for other disorders as well, but especially for stroke, to be on the hospital, on the premises, to take care of emergencies as they come into the hospital. Often I'm notified of cases on their way even before they got to the hospital uh, to be there, to assess them and get the treatment right away, hopefully to save brain, to save function, and to return people to a normal living um, and it's been shown to be very effective. And uh, at a busy stroke center, then there are uh, a lot of cases and need for neural hospitals. And it's a growing field where there really is a, a lot of uh, requests for hospitals that are going towards having a neural hospitalist practice uh, at their site. You know, it's so efficient from the standpoint that the last thing you want to do is so you have a busy neurologist who's in a private practice not in the building, and now you have to hope that they get to the emergency, leave their office, leave a waiting room full of patients, and try to get to the hospital to be there on time to intervene for stroke is just such an inefficient way of doing things that we've done for years. So uh, this innovation, as you've described it, has been great uh, for neurologic care. One of the terms we often hear now is a stroke code. Now, you've You've described it to some extent, but can you go into a little bit more detail of what is a stroke code? When we hear the word code, we always think heart attack, heart stop, somebody stop breathing, but now we have stroke codes. So can you talk a little bit more about what happens when someone has a stroke, how this all gets activated? Yeah, that's really important, as you mentioned, Tony. A stroke code can occur at any location. It can occur in the the primary doctor's office who notices it first at home or by emergency medical services and personnel that recognize any weakness on one side, difficulty speaking, a facial droop, or any numbness on one side would recognize that as being a stroke occurring in a very sudden manner. And that gets the ball rolling. And our emergency room will get a report of that, that's ideally on the way to the hospital and activate our, our stroke team to uh, meet the, the patient at the uh, emergency room entry point to uh, evaluate them for, for acute stroke treatments, emergent stroke treatments uh, that we have available at a community hospital if necessary to a comprehensive stroke center in um, a nearby hospital. And sometimes uh, we come across these patients who walk into the emergency room who weren't aware that they were having a stroke, and and uh, we'll activate it that way. And once we're on to a stroke, things get rolling quite fast. So when you talk about fast, let's talk about some of the time issues. For example, someone hits the emergency room. How long before they get imaging and how long before they get treated if they could use a clot-busting drug? Tony, this is uh, a recent uh, change we've had in our practice at our hospital, and other hospitals have been using it for a while as well. We've had very good results. Uh, basically, as, as soon as we spot the patient, we recognize the stroke, and we make sure that the patient is stable, 
respiratory and, and cardiac standpoint, we get them straight to the CT scanner, pretty much what we call a door-to-CT scanner. And the amount of time that has been um, recommended to perform that is 20 minutes. And with a door-to-CT scan, we're usually doing it uh, within half that time or less. Getting that uh, CT scan, which is so critical, once we've detected stroke, to see is if this is a hemorrhagic type of stroke due to bleeding, or if this is an ischemic stroke due to uh, a blood clot or an occlusion. And that, that makes a big difference in the way we initiate our treatment. We want neurologic expertise, and as we talked about, if there's a neural, neural hospitalist available, then they'll be at the site seeing the patient. If not, then a neurologist has to come in, or we're using uh, telemedicine to have a neurologist to evaluate remotely and then we wanted to get them to treatment, preferably within 60 minutes, but as soon as possible, because we know that the sooner we're able to administer the medication, restore blood flow to the brain, the better the outcomes, the more likely that person is able to return to a normal or near normal uh, lifestyle. Uh, now, one of the other things that you talk about really is so intervention and rehabilitation. You know, for many years, we always said, well, you had a stroke. There's not much we can do. So the rehabilitation uh, for someone with a stroke has really changed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. We're trying to get the rehabilitation process started as soon as possible. We know that, that early time after a stroke is very critical and, and um, to get that remodeling of the nervous system, which is so important for recovery and reestablishment of function. And it's also very important to help prevent side effects. We get people involved with rehab moving. We can prevent deep vein thrombosis, clotting. We can prevent pneumonia. Uh, we can hopefully also prevent falls. All these things by doing the rehab process early is been shown to be very helpful in continuing that uh, for for early on and, and also after the stroke to uh, help restore function is really important for stroke recovery. Some of the interventions, we talked about clot-busting drugs, uh, TPA, but now people are going in there and fishing out clots. What's the time limit for something like that? We used to think three hours for a clot-busting drug now it's up to four hours, right, or four and a half hours. Uh, but what about, is there enough time to go in and fish out a clot? Yeah, Tony, that's been one of the most exciting breakthroughs within the, the last year or two, that we're able to go farther and farther out from the time of the stroke to help intervene and remove the clot. The, the time period used to be about six hours, and we've always noticed that there are some patients who are able to benefit from these treatments much later out than that. And a recent trial called the DAWN trial looked at patients who were up to 24 hours out from their stroke. And if they met certain criteria, like having a large vessel that was occluded and limited injury to the brain with a large area that could still be stored, then these patients can go up to 24 hours. And we're getting to the point where 
the time is not really the essential feature. It's more how much of that brain can be rejuvenated by restoring blood flow versus how much of that brain has been irreversibly injured. And we're pushing the envelope farther and farther to where we can go in with a catheter, remove the clot, and help salvage that injured brain tissue. You know, I've been encouraged by how many young neurologists are now going into interventional neuroradiology, uh, doing things such as that and putting in coils for people with aneurysms. It's, it's really been an exciting time for us in neurology and particularly in vascular neurology. Uh, Nir, we're going to take a short break uh, to get uh, the news in, and uh, I'm sure we have to have another royal update uh, but uh, after that, I want to get back um, so we could chat a little bit more with Dr. Zevi about the future of stroke care. Where are we going? Are there new medications? Are there ways we could be doing things to prevent stroke? And what are going to be the new treatments? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're in our final segment. And we're chatting with my guest, Dr. Nir Zivi, who is a board-certified neurologist and uh, specialist in stroke, as well as being a neurohospitalist at Lawrence and Memorial Hospital in New London. Uh, Nir, what what do we have for the future of stroke? What what are we going to be seeing happen? Where are the where's the progress being made? Hey, Tony, we're really pushing the envelope a lot with stroke, with big breakthroughs over the last few years. One of the interesting developments have been mobile stroke units. It started off in Europe, and now there are several units in the United States where they're going out in the field with everything they need to administer stroke on site. And about what we talked about earlier with trying to restore blood flow and getting the, the brain, the the nutrients it needs as early as possible to prevent long-term injury. These units are going out into the field with a, a scanner on the ambulance and either a neurologist present or a neurologist tuning in by telemedicine to triage the patient and give them the TPA right then and there. And they've been getting some good results with that, especially in centers where they're, um, it takes a long time to get into the central hospital um, or there's uh, far-out communities that may not get to the hospital on time, they, they're getting good results. That's something we may see uh, become more popular uh, in certain areas of the country. Uh, there's also, I think, going to be implementation of these uh, new imaging techniques, such as CT perfusion, which tells us which part of the brain has been uh, irreversibly injured by the stroke, and gives us an idea of what, what, how much of the brain can be helped. And we may be using that for other types of strokes rather than just large vessel disease. I think we're going to see this going into smaller blood vessel strokes, able to help more people with stroke outside of that characteristic time window of about four and a half hours. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to seeing that being utilized more for other types of stroke rather been the biggest, uh, most worrisome large vessel stroke that we're using it for now. 
Near, how about stroke prevention from the standpoint of, I mean, we've been using baby aspirin for a long time. That seems to still be catching on, although I'm always amazed at how many people are not are at risk for stroke and are not taking a baby aspirin, something as simple as that. But we've gotten into getting people on statins, uh, ACE inhibitors, things like that. Any progress in that? Are we getting more people on aspirin? Yeah. You know, we're so good with the medical treatment to prevent stroke that it's really hard for studies that are coming out to show other interventions for stroke, especially with stenting, to compete with medical management because we've gotten really good with it. And just to give you an idea, patients with TIAs in the in the past, their risk of stroke within the next several months afterwards was estimated to be about 10 to 20%. Now with medications, as you mentioned, aspirin-type medications or, or variants of aspirin such as Plavix or dipyridamol with a cholesterol medication, namely a statin, blood pressure, diabetes control, we're able to get the risk of stroke down to about 1% to 2%, more than a tenfold improvement with medical treatment, uh, which, is, which is really powerful. And we're also always looking out for other risk factors. We know about diet, we know about exercise, Recently, a lot of information is coming about about obstructive sleep apnea as a risk factor for stroke, and studies that are going on looking at, about treating obstructive sleep apnea and seeing if we can reduce the risk of stroke that way as well. I think those are going to be very interesting as another common condition where we may be able to intervene and help reduce stroke risk. Uh, also, I just want to emphasize that it's really blood pressure. We're learning more and more how vital blood pressure plays a role in stroke, and that's where we can really focus our energies to reduce stroke by watching blood pressure closely, following up with your primary care doctor, keeping an eye on that, logging that, and adjusting your blood pressure medications as needed to to get that blood pressure control, because we can really prevent a lot of strokes by having good blood pressure. You know, one of the things near uh, uh, I'm smiling at is we've done such a good job in getting people to stop smoking. It's rare when you have to when you talk to a patient and you inter- you do your history and you find out they do smoke. But obviously, that's such a huge risk factor for stroke that we almost neglect to mention it because uh, you know we, we've had some benefit from it. Unfortunately, we see more and more young people now starting to smoke. Um, but, you know, the fact that if we could cut back more on smoking, I think uh, it would benefit everybody. You're right. You're right. That's something we need to remember to ask about and then find out a way of working together with a patient to see what's their motivation to stop smoking. Uh, do they realize uh, yep. the harm they're doing by this habit and what ways we can come up with to help them to cut down and eventually quit smoking and really encouraging that. Nir, thank you so much. Thanks for spending time with us today. I know you have a busy day ahead, and thanks for all you're doing for us at Lawrence and Memorial Hospital. My pleasure. Great being with you, Tony. Thanks. It's been great being with all of you today. Um, Next week on Healthy Rounds, we're going to be chatting about injuries to the hand with our uh, uh, previous guest, and uh, coming back again will be Dr. Stephen Scarangella. Uh, With that, quick shout-out to Gia Vincent, Audrey, and Ivy. I'm going to be seeing you guys soon, and I will see all of you next week. In the interim, please stay healthy. 
This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.